if we think about urbanization as a inevitable process, like we can't slow it down, and especially in global south countries in Africa, in South America, there's so many cities and towns going to grow. But we still have choice. Like we have different way of designs that we can further think about what would be the more sustainable ways to grow cities. Hi, I'm Stephanie Tumapos, and you're listening to Down to Earth, the show where we talk to incredible geoscientists about their science and its impacts on our planet. According to the United Nations, just over half of the world's population lives in urban areas. This number is expected to grow substantially to 68% by 2050. What are the implications of urbanization and climate change? What about our human health and well-being? Today, we're talking to a scientist exploring these areas in Denmark and beyond. Support for Down to Earth comes from the Inspire, Develop, Empower, Advance, or IDEA Committee of the IEEE Geoscience and Remote Sensing Society. This committee is all about empowering engineers and scientists to follow a career in geoscience and remote sensing. One way they do this is through the Women Mentoring Women program. This mentorship program runs for a year and fosters careers and friendships across generations, disciplines, and geographies. To learn more, visit grss-ieee.org and select IDEA from the community header menu. If you ask me what drives me to this area, I need to tell a short story about myself. I didn't know what to do as a high school student. But I went to a summer camp led by some sociologists, and we went to an indigenous tribe in Taiwan, and that was a eye-opening experience. I was talking to the residents and know about their flooding issue, and I thought before that point, I thought engineering was the like most important and only way that we need to protect the villages from flooding. This is Dr. Chu Xin Karen Chen. She's a Donnelly postdoctoral associate at Yale University, whose research is focused on changing urban form and what it means for human well-being. Over the days staying with the residents, and I heard about their story more and know that a dam was constructed in the surrounding area to create more hydrological power for the downstream cities. But it caused increased flooding risk in upstream tribes. So I started thinking about, whoa, okay, humanity is actually one of the important components when we consider environmental issues. So it's not purely physical science, but also we need to consider social circumstances and also the environmental justice issue. So I started to like try to bring both. Uh, environmental factors and social factors together in my models. Not only does Karen use remote sensing and machine learning to study the environmental impacts of urbanization, but she also takes a look at an important factor that is often missing when we try to understand and make decisions about sustainable city development: the impact of urbanization on our mental health. So let's start with the basics. What is urbanization? Urbanization to me is about living style. Like, would you go out for eating, or are you like self-sustain your living by like plants and your crops?、Um, but if we bring urbanization to a larger scale, to a global scale, then we have different metrics of measuring what is urban life. 
And two metrics that we usually use: one is population, like how many people are urban population, or what is the urban density. And the other metric is more about land, like how much build-up areas we have. In the coming thirty years, there will be an additional two point five billions of people become urban residents. And to accommodate such large, growing urban population, every single day there are about ten to twenty thousands of American football fields. Like that large of urban land, gonna to be converted from other kind of land uses, such as vegetation and agriculture land uses. Wow, that's a lot of land use change. Which actually makes me wonder: Is urbanization happening at higher rates because rural areas are becoming urban, or is it because so many people are moving from rural to urban areas? Yeah, yeah, this is such a great questions. I think both, like both rural urban migration, but also in the existing villages and towns. So we know that compared to mega cities, we will actually have more population growth in the cities or towns or smaller villages that has lower than one million people. So how do we feel the division between urban and rural areas? In my research now, I try to create an idea that is the continuum of urbanization rather than a. Dichotomous urban-rural division. So you mean rural areas in some ways are transforming into urban areas too, and this has a huge impact on land use and climate change. As you've said, you know these areas, the land use can grow. So can you speak to the ways in which urbanization and climate change are linked? Yeah,、um, the way I will talk about it has two dimensions now. One is how climate change will affect urban life, but the other way is how urbanization as a process actually shape climate change globally. The energy consumption about sixty seven percent come from urban area, and about seventy five percent of carbon emissions are from urban areas. So, in the past, we usually consider urban areas as like a culprit. Of climate change because they are, they consume so much energy, and as the urban land grow, it kind of encroach on other wildland and agricultural land and damage our ecosystem surface. So there are many problems coming from urban areas, from energy,、um, from ecosystem, and even heat island effects. So when there is a large collection of Impervious surface, it will lead to urban heat island effect. Compared to rural areas, usually the urban area that has less vegetation cover, it will have a higher temperature. So, for instance, for example, like last year in Canada, Vancouver had a temperature in June about thirty one Celsius degrees, but in the history in this region. Uh, on average, in June it was only twenty degrees. It's on the one hand about climate change, but also about the spatial variability. Yeah, that's a huge difference for sure. 
So this increase in temperature is an example of how climate change will impact our urban life. But you also mentioned it's about spatial variability in urban settings. Does this have something to do with how urbanization as a process shapes climate change? This is a, such an interesting question. And I want to continue the example from Heath Island. So there was a study published two years ago by Nature Communication. And the studies, they look into different urban forms by simulating different urban growth scenarios in Berlin city in Germany. And to supply an increase of population, they give three different strategies. One is to replace low-rise buildings by high-rise buildings. And the second one is to build up denser urban environments that replace the green space by more buildings in the existing urban areas. And the third one is to keep the same portion of green space, but expand the urban areas uh, at the original boundary. Do you want to make a guess like which one lead to more severe heat island effects? Hmm. I'm not sure, but the third one? You make a good guess. Like, sprawling city is one of the big problems for many issues. Like, people need to transport more, and they consume more energy for driving far distances. Um, But for his island effect in this scenario, they find out the second scenario when you replace the green space into impervious surface actually lead to a higher heat island effect because within the same urban area, they don't have the green space that can adapt the heat. So the example kind of like tell us a story that although we are going to to supply the same amount of population growth, but different urban design and planning can actually lead to very different outcomes. That's really interesting. I guess we need to rethink how we develop cities if we want to help mitigate the impacts of climate change. But your research actually delves into a very unique aspect of city development, and that's the impact of urban form on mental health. So tell me about this work. How does urbanization impact our mental health? Yeah, of course. Um, I think it's kind of similar to other environmental issues we talk about, that we think that urbanization is a crisis for many things and also for mental health because we know that urban area is riskier for mental health in terms of the pace of life, overstimulation, and we know empirically about 29% more instance rates of depression are in urban areas compared to rural areas. So when I approach this question, the similar challenge to me is if we can't stop urbanization, then the questions is not just about whether urban areas or urban population are riskier than the rural counterparts, but rather it's about how do we design a kind of urban environment that could be helpful for mental health. There are actually a bunch of publications regarding the connection between the built environment and and mental health, but most of them are relying on survey data. And survey data is very expensive. So sometimes we have like a few hundred samples. And with this size of sample, it's hard to see different urban forms because it's only in one city. And it's also hard to control other confounding factors like uh, incomes, 
unemployment, and other risky factors. So in my PhD, I started thinking about、hmm, how how do we link the built environment and urban form to mental health, while at the same time we can do a large scale study. For instance, if we can cover the whole country and have a lot of cities in the country, and we can at the same time control for other confounding factors. And what have you found out? Our finding is actually quite interesting, but in our study, we find out that the densest urban area is now the riskiest region. And in contrast, we find out the sprawling suburban area is the riskier area compared to both rural areas and. The densest city centers. So, living in a suburban area is actually more risky when it comes to mental health outcomes than living in a rural or dense urban area.、Mm-hmm. That makes sense, but it also brings up so many questions for me. Like, how did you determine this conclusion through research? What tools did you use? Yeah, so it's a very interdisciplinary study, and I can explain this process into two parts. The first part is that we want to understand what is the urban form across Denmark, and how does the environment change over time? A city will grow, it will regenerate, or sometimes it will decay. So we need a kind of toolkit that allow us to trace、um, the dynamic of cities, and we use deep learning and artificial intelligence to capture the patterns of urban form. In terms of its height and spacing across Denmark, and also find the method is generalizable to map other European cities. So this is what you said about you and your colleagues developed the first deep learning method to predict three D urban structures, structure information at thirty meter resolution across time. So how did you do it? How what was the the angle on developing this architecture? Yeah, I like so much when you use the word about angles. Like which angle I got into the innovation of this study. I wouldn't say that in terms of the model architecture is the first architecture because it originates from convolutional neural network. But no one has been creating urban form at that high resolution before this study. But now, if we want to understand human life and our lifestyles, we want to know the neighborhood and and the features in the space that we are accessible in our daily life. So we definitely need something that is not just one kilometer average environment. So in this sense, we started thinking about how do we adapt the traditional computer vision methods. To satellite images, and then to create the information that is able to present a high-resolution feature. A quick aside for our listeners to explain some of these concepts before I ask Karen more specifics about her research. To understand a convolutional neural network, let's think of a computer like a brain. Our brain has neurons, and these neurons hold different packets of information. They are wired together like a network to transmit and assemble these different pieces of information to create a whole concept. So, for example, when we see an object like a bird, we see different parts of the object, like feathers, a beak, etc., that our brain then assembles together to come up with a final object of bird. So, a convolutional neural network works in a similar way. 
If we feed it a satellite image, it takes a look at each pixel and assesses it against its own data to identify different elements in the picture, like vegetation, buildings, or other impervious structures. So from the computer's interpretation, we can understand areas of the city that are high density or not. Now, back to the interview. So how does this research help us do that, understand lifestyles and features of urbanization? Yeah, so the overarching classification scheme is to understand the horizontal and vertical dimension of density. So the first part is how do we quantify urban environment? And the second part, after we have the urban map, we link that to Danish register database. And for each individual in Denmark, they have the historical data of their residents, they have their registered like diagnosis whenever they visit a doctor, and they have the diagnosis record about uh, mental health, physical health, and about their work, incomes, education at any time. In the study, we didn't directly measure lifestyles, but this landscape metrics are highly related to lifestyles. So if I understand correctly, you map the horizontal and vertical densities of the urban space, and then you take a look at the Danish records of health or these lifestyle metrics to understand the link between urban density and health. So what did you find? So one thing we do find is that urban forms, like different kind of environment, does lead to different outcomes of mental health. And this environment, the one we find most beneficial is the one with high-rise, like multi-story buildings, but they are in front of harbor or green park. Coming up, we dig into the ways we can work towards Sustainable Development Goal 11 to make cities and human settlements inclusive, safe, resilient, and sustainable. So stay tuned. Close your eyes. Take a deep breath. I'm going to ask you three questions. First, who is your favorite scientist? Someone alive today who is smart, accomplished, passionate, and knowledgeable. Can you picture them? Now, if your favorite scientist is a man, tell me, who is your favorite woman scientist? Last question. Who is your favorite woman scientist in your country? If no one comes to mind, then maybe that person should be you. Help make an impact on a woman's career by joining the Geoscience and Remote Sensing Society's Women Mentoring Women program today. To sign up, visit grss-ieee.org and select IDEA from the community header menu. Welcome back. Today, we're speaking to Dr. Chu Xin Karen Chen, a Donnelly postdoctoral associate at Yale University. So far, we've established that urbanization will definitely impact our future because people are migrating to urban areas and because rural areas are being developed into urban spaces. As we've discussed, urbanization is closely linked to climate change. It's not only a product of climate change, like when a major disaster destroys rural livelihoods and forces folks to seek jobs in the city, but it's also shaping how climate change develops. For example, 
When we transform more land from rural to urban, we increase the potential for heat sinks, pollution, and more, which then enhances climate change. In addition to all this, urbanization is negatively correlated to the health and well-being of people, particularly with respect to mental health. But it's not all doom and gloom. By gaining a better understanding of how we can develop city spaces in a more sustainable fashion, we can learn how to reduce the impacts of climate change and create safer, more inclusive, and resilient cities for everyone. Karen has started to do this work through her research on urban form and mental health. She and her team were the first to use Landsat data at 30 meters spatial resolution for monitoring three-dimensional urban densification in Denmark. Through this work, they reveal the usefulness of deep networks and multi-scale contextual information to improve classification efforts. They also discover that different urban forms or environments relate to different mental health outcomes. One finding Karen didn't talk about, which is also important to mention here, is that over the past 20 years, many residential environments across Denmark have experienced increased densification at the same time as increased greening. What this suggests is that trends were driven by climate change as well as urban planning policies focused on increasing nature in the cities. What does this mean for our mental health? Let's dive back in to find out. Let's dig deeper with the Sustainable Development Goal 11, which is all about sustainable cities and communities. So the goal is specifically about making cities and human settlements inclusive, safe, resilient, and sustainable. SDG 11 mentions all sorts of parameters to achieve, including upgrading slums, protecting cultural and natural heritage, reducing deaths, just to name a few. However, it doesn't specifically mention mental health. So in your view, what will a sustainable city look like for you? Yeah, yeah. Sustainable city is definitely multidimensional. Like so many components from the environment to human well-being that are important to make a city sustainable. But if you ask me personally, what do I think about sustainable city? I would say a city that can make people feel comfortable about their environment and about their life. And we didn't say specifically mental health in the Sustainable Development Goal 11, but I think we still have a lot to do to be aware and to understand more about mental health. And when we talk about a comfortable living environment, a relaxing environment and a mental health care system need to be accessible and affordable when people need it. One thing we do find from the study is that urban form matters, but at the same time, we need to consider justice and whether housing are affordable to people in general, not just to a certain groups of people. Hmm. So could we design our cities so that more areas have more access to green spaces and nature? Would that help with mental health? Yeah, I think you bring out such interesting points that it's all about accessibility. Like we can't make everywhere to be the same kind of like look, but we can make sure people from different areas can access to it if the public transport is well designed. So there are many factors that affect the mental health of a person. And you've mentioned public transport, which is lacking in many areas around the world. How, how can we design or redesign a big mega city or a big urban city to become more of a sustainable city? 
Yeah, yeah, this is a great question. Even in some North American cities, we still find they are highly dependent on motorization. So basically, people need a car to drive everywhere. Even though they are a relatively higher income than developing country, but not necessarily they have public transport. So one important component besides the building density is how do we allocate land use? I have two example like from two extremes. One is from Houston in North America, and it is about twenty persons per hectare. So it's very, very not dense in this case compared to if we think about cities in Asia like、uh, Hong Kong, it's more than two hundred people per hectare. So it's more than ten times the population density compared to an American city. In North America, because the allocation of land use is very separated, like we have a homogeneous zone of residential areas and then retail areas. And other industrial parks, so people they need a car to to access to these different places. While in the city that is very compact and mixed in land use, they will be able to walk to go work and also to go grocery. So it's about density, but it's also about how do we allocate different surfaces in people's daily life that can reduce the amount of dependency on cars. Or can we just use public transport or walking? You mentioned that urbanization isn't just about rural populations migrating to urban areas. It's also about rural areas are beginning to transform into urban areas. So, how can we use your research findings and the findings of other urbanization researchers to help direct policymakers as they start to develop these rural areas into urban spaces? So, from my research. Uh, in terms of using satellite data, it provides an opportunity to consistently measure population growth along the whole continuum of urban-rural gradients. And one study we are measuring urbanization in rural areas in the Himalaya region. And the challenge we see in the region or in this kind of approach is that、um, because Globally available satellite data, say Modi's Landsat or Sentinel two, the highest resolution so far we have is ten meter by ten meter pixel, and in many cases we know that、uh, a building is smaller than ten by ten pixels, especially in rural areas. It could be a very small house, so we are inventing a new approach that is able to measure the urban fraction within pixels. Oh, that's interesting because you're already trying to analyze every pixel.、Um, what's still missing on in this work on urbanization, climate change, and data science? What could help us enhance our research and work in these areas? I see one of the big gap is to collaborate across different disciplines,、um, from urban planners. To climate scientists, to data scientists, to come together and to deal with an issue that we all care about, and I think traditionally there are several obstacles that prohibit this approach, like in terms of publications, need to publish papers in some kind of journals, and sometimes your department might limit you to publish in the domain journals. For instance, if I am in a 
urban planning department. I need to publish in urban planning journals. Even the engineering, then I need to publish in engineering journals. So they are still like gap in, in interdisciplinary work that we need more incentive in terms of uh, publication and and in terms of like fundraising. That's an interesting answer because I think I feel the same way when it comes to research. When we publish something, it has to be specifically in a, in a specific topic of a journal. When in fact, for example, designing, redesigning a city, it's not just a data scientist, but you have urban planners, you have policy makers. There's a lot of groups of people that work throughout to develop a city. And I'm sure you have already had meetings with a lot of different people just to get the whole picture of urbanization and the intersection between mental health and, of course, the environment as well. Yeah. Um, A lot of students these days are understandably concerned about climate change, and many are interested in gearing their careers, scientific careers, towards tackling climate change. What advice would you give to these students? For students... Interest in climate change, I think this is super exciting. One advice I would like to give is about uh, communication. Because when we think about climate change as an issue, usually we will only work in our own field, like climatology, transportation, energy, economics, or culture, or justice. Sometimes when you find the angle, you will find the topic you are involved are actually connected to two or three or even more field. So um, when you do your research, think about what would be the strategy of communication in a way that you can reach out to your own field and to a degree that general audience that you can you can talk to and make an impact that you want to contribute. Thank you so much, Karen. Um, where can folks learn more about you and your work? So you can find my profile in University of Washington's website from next year. I will be an assistant professor at a joint position between urban planning, environmental health, and data science. And I am recruiting new students from 2023. So do reach out to me. Well, that's all for this episode of Down to Earth. We have some fascinating episodes in store for you this season. So don't forget to follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And send some love to our sponsors at IEEE underscore GRSS on Twitter and Instagram and IEEE Geoscience and Remote Sensing on Facebook and LinkedIn. This episode was produced by Nicole Bedford from Nicole Bedford Films with help from me, Stephanie Tomampos. Graphics and design by Mylene Briggs of Killam Media. And a special thanks to Heather McNairn and Sean Kefauver for their support. I'm Stephanie Tomampos and you've been listening to Down to Earth. <laughs>